Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, I'm pleased to say that joining me on today's show on what is another warm sunny morning here in the capital is Marina Robertson. Marina is a senior director at Norse Consulting, an award-winning and community-focused multidisciplinary property consultancy in London, which is part of the wider Norse group. Uh, Marina, thank you for joining us on the show today and welcome. Yeah, thank you very much, Scott. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the show, and it certainly is a lovely day for it, isn't it? Um, I don't Absolutely. wish to, I don't of course wish to dampen the mood um, caused by this lovely weather, but I think we should address the elephant in the room, let's say, um, and that's the fact that we are recording this podcast in July of 2021, mid to late July, that is, and so social restrictions in England have gone for the time being when it comes to the COVID nineteen global pandemic, but we have still sort of seen the impact of it we're still feeling the impact of it and have done for the best part of the last sort of 16 months now um with all of that in mind to what extent has the global health crisis affected you and affected your business the norse consulting arm of norse group thank you scott uh it's a huge extent actually uh personally I used to travel quite a lot for my job because uh, we have businesses around the country. Uh, right now, I'm traveling almost zero, so my miles have reduced uh, dramatically. Um, we have uh, The way we communicate with each other has changed quite a lot, actually. Although uh, Teams and Zoom have, have made contacts um, a lot more frequent and a lot more accessible uh, to ourselves and our colleagues. Uh, there have also a lack of face-to-face uh, collaboration has seen a barrier uh, actually to work more uh, in partnerships and in, more, in a more cooperative uh, way. So I would say positives and negatives in terms of their way uh, we work. On a personal level, like a lot more people have seen, uh, I have seen my uh, work life bleed into my home life uh, and those um, barriers of uh, do not exist anymore between a, work, a workplace and home life. And mm. quite a lot of us have had to put um, together mechanisms uh, to, to make that work and uh, cope. Um, and yeah, on a personal level also, I think with a few of uh, uh, my friends and my colleagues and myself, a lot about what matters in life and what is really important and how do we trans- how do we begin to have those conversations with our employees and how do we translate that into strategies, etc., um, it's yeah, and looking at the employee as an individual, as a person, as a um, someone we contract with, but also as a as a part of society and the role they play. 
So yeah, in terms of myself, that's really uh, has been the impact. I think you raise an incredibly important point there, Marina, actually, because when we think about sort of flexible working, we hear a lot about the effect that it's had on the work-life balance of people. But what often isn't considered is the fact that bleeding your working life into your home life, as you call it, it blurs that line between work life and home life, and they almost become one in the same in a sense. And when that happens, it does have sometimes a negative knock-on effect for mental health and well-being because it's harder just to stop, isn't it, and take that break and recharge the batteries when you need to. Oh, goodness. Absolutely, Scott. You're so right. Exactly right. Quite a lot of my colleagues are, um, have experienced this, and I can talk from personal experience uh, as well. It is really difficult. And also you feel a sort of obligation to be available uh, because access to your workplace and your colleagues is just at the touch of a button rather than uh, getting ready, getting the car, driving to work, having a coffee in the kitchen with someone then settling in. Um, it, it, yeah, the world of work has changed. And I think all of us have found a way to make it work. Um, and I think all of us have discovered resilience we didn't realize we had. And uh, yeah, as an organization looking after our people, we have to take all that into account and how it influences our future, future strategies. And don't get me wrong, it does have a positive economic impact in terms of uh, we're now starting to think whether, for example, we need all this workspace. Um, and the reality is we don't. So if we don't and we only need some, what is it that we actually need? And where should we prioritize our activity? Uh, so a lot, a lot of thinking. And I think it, it has, the change we have experienced has, been, has not been incremental, has it? Because we have talked, I remember back in probably 2004, we were implementing a project, I remember, in Haringey Council at the moment, where we introduced flexible working. Mm. Um and seven to ten ratios in terms of workstations to people. Um, but it has been quite incremental over the last 20 years or so, and suddenly um, it was a bit of a burning platform uh, change, as they call it. So we had to, to jump from a burning platform and just make it work overnight. And that shows uh, perhaps that we had... Uh, already started to think about it, and that's why we were able to do it so quickly. But also, it shows the degree of resilience that people have, and our organisational processes and structures have as well. And when we talk about that resilience, do you think that because you've shown that within the business and you've had this experience of pivoting and adapting, and that's maybe made you sort of stronger? for the experience that you've had, you've come through this and you've excelled and therefore you've learned a lot and you're coming out of this both stronger as a business and stronger as a leader. Absolutely, absolutely. The, the key issue for us is to create the space to reflect. Uh, and I think when we go 100 miles an hour, because we go 100 miles an hour to make sure the business remains viable 
and to find new ways uh, to generate income, new ways uh, to motivate our staff, uh, new ways to help and support our clients. That requires a lot more uh, effort, uh, really. And I think when we go 100 miles an hour, it's really difficult to actually say we need at some point stop and reflect. Mm and learn lessons and adjust our leadership uh, for the future. And uh, if uh, we may have got some things wrong, uh, as this have survived, so we must have got most things right, but we really need to reflect on that and adjust because that's progress, isn't it? It is exactly. And I think what the COVID-19 situation certainly has done is give us that time to sort of reflect and become more self-aware as well and become more aware of our own work-life balance, our own mortality, our own limitations for sure. And that's one of the key things that I think we need to kind of hang on to as we move into the future, isn't it? Even though restrictions are gone for now, like we should continue to sort of heed the lessons of the pandemic, shouldn't we? Absolutely, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, there is, we see that permeating across society. This is not just a sector that is mm. thinking that way. I was at my hairdresser yesterday, and she was telling me how she actually, uh, because she's in a trade, she has enough points to get a visa for Australia. Because uh, over the weekend, she thought that uh, over the um, the pandemic, she actually reflected on what matters to her and her family and an, uh, an outdoor life is what they're after and a less materialistic society. And, you know, a lot of a lot of people have thought that. We've seen a lot of people move to the country. Uh, we are seeing the results of that in terms of changes in the labour market. Uh, so people can now work from anywhere. Uh, so previously, you ha- if you had a job in London, you needed to get paid a certain salary in order to, to be able to afford to live there. Now, uh, big companies can actually access people that live in places where they don't uh, salaries. Um, people do not demand such high salaries, and then it affects the businesses in those localities where they can no longer attract. Uh, skills because they have already been accessed by the multinationals in London. So it just we are seeing the entire labour market just shifting a little bit of, uh, at the moment, uh, and it will be interesting to see where it settles. It is interesting, isn't it? Because with the proliferation of flexible working, we're seeing people moving out of cities, aren't we, and into more rural yeah. settings. So it's an interesting time for the property sector and. Certainly, I think when it comes to commercial properties, with people reviewing whether they need sort of office and workspaces now, like that's also got a little bit of an uncertainty hanging over its future, hasn't it? Yes, definitely. Uh, and the biggest challenge, I think that uh, big commercial businesses will do uh, well. And the reason they will do well is because they will reduce their footprint, reduce their direct if they keep their income the same, they will see a bigger profit. It's a very simple equation. The issue that I think will exist for the property sector and actually generally local government regeneration is what will happen to the town centres and what will be those uses that will come to replace office space. 
and personally, I think uh, local authorities face a really exciting period in terms of redesigning the high streets and uh, actually looking to think like culture um, mm. to uh, replace some of those units uh, so that there is that collective leadership that has emerged from the pandemic has effectively a space uh, to operate from. So very exciting times, but only exciting for the local authorities, I think, that um, have taken the time to kind of con- reset and consider about what that future for the high streets will look like. As a property sector, we'll always report, uh, respond to market uh, needs. We have the opportunity to shape through strategic advisory services and mm-hmm. leadership uh, pieces. Um, so it is very exciting times to see where we go. And the kind of skills we're going to need as a property sector in the future, we have a, a, an aging workforce um, and uh, we, we will see a lot of people retire, RICF surveyors retire in the next 10, 20 years. So how do we work in that generationally and how do we tap into the skills but also technologies uh, that will tell, uh, support the work of the future so, yeah, a lot going on, Scott, a lot going on. Mm, it certainly seems it. And I just want to go back to something that you mentioned near the beginning as well, um, that in your sort of role as a property consultancy, um, sometimes the sort of remote meetings don't quite sort of cut the mustard, as it were. You do have to sort of have that face-to-face interaction with clients. And mm. with the sort of restrictions in England now being lifted, is there now sort of some real optimism that this can continue and that there's that there's an appetite for that sort of face-to-face interaction? Or are you finding that there's maybe a little bit of apprehension there just because of this, the risks that are still there with the virus? You know what? There's huge appetite for face-to-face interaction. Mm. But I also do think that people remain cautious uh, about the next few months. Uh, as a business, we have said to our people, lockdown has been lifted, but there is no reason for you to put yourself at uh, unnecessary risk. If you can be productive and work from home or from clients' offices, please go ahead and do so. So we have not enforced the population of offices, and I think it would be um, a bit reckless, actually. Uh, to, to do that just for the night. We have already suffered as a business in the first, uh, in the last perhaps 10 days or so from the pandemic. So if uh, people, and if people are people and fees, if they go out and do surveys, if they get things, they cannot go out and do surveys, we cannot pay for the work, and it really affects us financially. So having a more cautious approach to it helps the business and also help uh, protect our uh, staff. But they, everyone is fed up <laughs> with, with this and everyone mm. wants to see each other again in, uh, um, in person and uh, just perhaps have a glass of wine and just uh, celebrate that we have got on the other side of this and, and look back naturally and also commemorate some of the people that are not with us anymore as well. Yeah, I think everyone just wants that little bit of a dose of normality, a little bit of closure from the pandemic and to decisively pay tribute to those that we've so unfortunately lost along the way, don't we? And 
I think as we sort of enter this period now where restrictions are gone, we don't know whether that's going to be the same for the long term, do we? It is a little bit of an uncertain time. But in an ideal world, just before we wrap things up on the show today, Marina, um, over the next year, what are some of your priorities going to be at Norse Consulting? And where do you see yourselves this time next year in an ideal world? Well, we have uh, actually done what I said earlier. So we have taken a a pause to reflect on what we have learned. Uh, We now have a a five-year plan um, that addresses our growth as a uh, a business. We see sustainability and climate at the centre of it. Uh, We have now started to think about the triple bottom line, uh, how that reflects in everything we do, all advice we provide, design we do, uh, how we deliver services, how we engage with clients. So that is, uh, I'm sure the listeners of the podcast would know, but I'm talking about the triple bottom line of sustainability, which is economic, uh, social, but also environmental. Uh, impact that our decisions make. So we're we're starting to see this shift in the sector now, and uh, we we're hugely committed uh, in um, focusing on that really over the next year and transforming our products in the way we work uh, to reflect that. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, sustainability certainly is going to be key moving forward. I think you're absolutely right, and. It should be very much at the heart of what industry is doing at the moment because of that government uh, build back better agenda that we talk about. There's so much backing for the green economic recovery and we've really got to make sure that that's at the forefront of all of this. Um, Marina, I have to say, um, given just how eye-opening it's been having you join us on the programme to talk a little bit about how sort of the property consultancy industry has been affected by all of this, just because we're still in that period of what if this, what if that, there's the uncertainty still there. I think it would be great once we start to get a better idea over the next few months as to what is going on and where the recovery is going. If we could actually potentially welcome you back onto the programme just to catch up on how things are getting on within the Norse group, because I've really enjoyed having you on the show with us. Um, It's been a real eye-opening experience and I'm sure the listeners also share that sentiment. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Scott. Always a pleasure. Of course, of course. Thanks very much. And lastly, just before we depart, please do continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on because we're not out of the pandemic yet, but fingers crossed that better days certainly are ahead of us. Thank you. Thank you, Scott, and yourself as well. Thank you. And I'd also extend that message to all of the listeners tuning into today's podcast. Please do continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make such a key difference in saving lives during this most trying time. It was a real pleasure to welcome Marina Robertson, Senior Director at Norse Consulting within the Norse Group, onto today's show. And I do hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed the interview and an insight into the property consultancy industry. Um, Until next time, since indoor hospitality is returned, I'll be heading back to my usual spot in the Westminster Arms and raising a glass to outstanding leadership. But before then, joining us next on the programme will be Matthew O'Neill with his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today chairman here at the Leaders' Council and he will be discussing his take on the pandemic period, the challenges that society has faced during this time and his hopes for the weeks and months ahead in what will hopefully prove to be a time of economic recovery. That will be coming up on the show next.
Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the U.S. and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries have a very different hi interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work and those elements are true of all leaders ideas ability to build a team to have confidence in that team uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice sometimes at the most difficult times and you know the leaders council those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up 
in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.